Veterinarians are trained to look after the health of animals, but are they trained to look after themselves and the people around them? Resilience training, positive psychology and self-care are all important tools we can use to look after our mental health. But what are they and how can we actually use them? Kathy Warburton has practiced as a veterinarian and now works as a wellness consultant across the industry. And she's the perfect guest to help answer these questions. Hello and welcome to Flynn's Talk. This is the podcast where we're talking all about veterinarians' mental health um, and the mental health of the broader community as well. I'm Jack Levitt, one half of the co-hosting panel. Cam, welcome back, mate. Thank you. Good to be back. Always good to have you, mate. And yeah, Jeremy Gellman's, uh, well, it's fair to say he's dropped the ball. Um, that's two in a row now, Jez. Um, Plastic. Jeez. We'll be uh, deducting annual leave, I think. Uh, yep. One yep. week's okay, but uh, two weeks. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what is he doing? Well, he's Jeez. he's got he's got a bit going on at the moment, um, <laughs> which is all right. Jez, hello if you're listening, mate. Yeah. Um, he will be back next week, um, but uh, he's having a bit of a breather. But Cam, it's actually really nice today to have you because um, we've got a, we've got a pretty special guest, uh, and I think I say that every week, and 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 every time we. We find someone new to talk to; it just gets it just gets even better. And yeah, so today we've got Kathy Warburton. Um, she has a pretty amazing perspective on mental well-being in the vet profession because she she is a vet. Um, she's worked uh, as a clinician and manager in um, private university and corporate practices um, for some time. Um, a lot of that time has been in the quite stressful situation of emergency and critical care. Um, and through that, she has um, built up a real appreciation for the well-being of her clients and also her co-workers. Um, and so that's led her into the area of positive psychology. So um, she's she's done a lot for the profession. Um, I've, I've been fortunate to have a little bit to do with her both as a student when I went through vet school, but more recently um, as, a, as a staff member at the university. Um, and it's it's really exciting to, to be able to speak to her. Yeah, that, that care for people, I suppose, is something that we're really dedicated to as well. And, and I've been um, keen to draw attention to. So what do you reckon, mate? We'll get into it. Sounds good. Let's do it. Well, Cam, it's great to be joined by another special guest for this episode. Kathy Warburton has uh, lived the life as a practicing vet and, and spent a lot of time in emergency and critical care and has found a pathway now into helping the people that help the animals, which is really kind of what all of this is about for Flynn's Walk and Flynn's Talk. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. All vets have their own story and, and motivators for why they got into the profession. And we'll get into what the transition meant for you in terms of where you are now. But going back to the start, what was it for you that drew you to vet science? Why did, why did you want to care for animals? It, it began in my family and I grew up surrounded by animals. So my father had grown up in the country and he loved cattle. He was a bank manager and he was um, very, we lived a city life, but he always loved cows and particularly Herefords. 
And so we got some land and we had some Herefords before we moved on to a small hobby farm. And my mum's dream was always to ride horses. And so I got to live my dream because my mum had a dream to ride horses. So it started with cattle and then it went to a dog and then horses and then it expanded to budgies and rabbits and sheep and goats and almost everything that you could think of. Wow. On only 12 acres. Gee, that's quite quite the menagerie. Yeah, we did live in Hobart or outside Hobart. So 12 acres of land can support a bit more um, than 12 acres in some parts of the of Australia. We were neighbours. That's where I'm where I'm from originally, down in Hobart. And so you've had a variety of clinical and training and management roles um, in academic and private organizations throughout your career. How did that career progression take place and how did the the changes that you've um, been through come about? Well, um, I always wanted to be a large animal vet. And so all my um, work at uni was sort of pushed towards doing large animals. Then after 18 months in large animals, it, it just wasn't going very well for me. And I'd, I'd have to say that if I look back on my career, I've had probably, I've been in three major jobs or three workplaces that for long periods of time. And each of them I've left in a, in a, in a variably sized blaze of glory or not glory. Um, so there's been something that pushed me away often in workplaces rather than me actively seeking to change and grow, uh, which, is, which isn't a very nice reflection when you sit back and, and look at it, but uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person that uh, has had that happen. Um, so, yeah, so I went from being in a mixed practice wanting to do all cattle um, to going to the UK and doing the typical um, locum thing and then realising that I was in general practice but I, I just couldn't be good at anything um, because you were so spread between different things. And I thought the, the one thing that really puts a, a spark in my eyes is emergency and critical care. And so I did actively look to go into emergency and critical care. That was one time where I went towards something. So that was good. <laughs> Uh, and that's then followed, it sort of flowed on from there. You were kind of flagging that you're being spread further than you felt you should be or that you you potentially were capable of, like, which takes a fair amount of honesty to um, acknowledge that. But I, I, as an outside person, as not working in the industry as a vet, I would, I would think that emergency care spreads you even thinner or... Is it, is it the reactiveness is, is different in that in that environment? Like talk me through that. So when you are in general practice, you've got to know about emergencies, but you've also got to know about dermatology and you've got to know about surgery and you've got to know about this whole spectrum of things. And so small animal practice is one thing, but if you go to mixed practice and you have that over a number of different species, there's just so many things to learn. And I'm that typical perfectionist that doesn't want to just do things superficially. I, I wanted to narrow it down so that I could do something well. And you, you could think that emergency and critical care is very wide and broad, but once you've been doing it for a little while, your bread and butter becomes like a, a bloat or a diabetic ketoacidotic rather than being dentals or vaccinations or spays. 
So it just um, narrows it down. The way that you approach an emergency is pretty consistent no matter what the emergency is. Yeah, that makes sense. It's still um, a lot of those things still scare the pants off me, though. I think, you know, all those really, <laughs> really fast paced emergency things. Yeah, that was always something that I found found very difficult. But I can I can really understand what, what you mean about um I've always loved the variety in vet, but it is it is hard to to feel like you're getting on top of um, of everything, particularly in mixed practice where there's just so much stuff um, that it can yeah it can be can be pretty overwhelming, can't it? Yeah, and that that little voice that talks to you and says that you're not good enough get it got quieter for me when I narrowed down and and could feel good at one thing that paints that picture for me knowing the thought process in that because i guess for me if if i was going to be a vet and i never was going to be i didn't didn't take that path but i'd probably just want to know what was coming in the door and have the schedule of events in front of me maybe that just speaks to to me as as a person but um i can certainly understand that uh where you chose to go the the thing i'd um, was reading about Kathy and, and uh, was having a look at your website, and we'll get we'll get to that um, side in, in a minute. But when did that transition? Was it a moment, an event where you went, hold the phone? We've we've got it down pat here, looking after the cat or dog coming in that may have been hit by a car or whatever's happened, but we're not really looking after the people. Yeah, so it wasn't a, a single moment; it was a process. And it started with, so my interest in people was f- was first in the uh, clients before it became my colleagues. Um, and it started with the clients because we were in emergency care, so we were doing referral work and we surveyed our referring vets to find out what they thought of the care that we provided. And if you summarised what they said, it was that you guys are awesome clinically and the clients think you're cold and heartless. We had to step back and look at it and go, well, we're trying to tell people who we've never met before what we think is the best practice. And we're really good at knowing what is best practice, but best practice doesn't matter because we've got to fit that in within the client's context. And so the first realization was that being an effective vet is not necessarily about providing the best standard of clinical care it's about creating a relationship with the client so that you can do the best for the client stroke animal the pair of them or it might be more than a pair Um, there might be a whole family there Uh, and you've got to take their context into account in order to be able to come up with what is the best treatment for the for the family unit so it was that realization first um, and and that led to me trying to learn how to how to train people to be effective communicators and to try and understand the client's context and not just be about um, what's the best thing clinically to do. So that was the start really of, I guess, seeing things from other people's perspectives because I think until that point I was well and truly part of the paternalistic model of healthcare which is that I'm the expert, sit there and listen to me and I will tell you how it is. Uh, and that was the beginning of realising that that actually that doesn't work very well and I, I need to change and we need to change as an organisation. And then that 
went the next step to go, oh, God, look what happens when you listen to your client, your colleagues as well as your clients. Look what you find out. Look what you can do. Look, look how you can create an environment where people can um, perform better and have a more enjoyable life. We've looked at what can be sometimes a transactional nature of, of going to a vet um, and when and how that crosses the line of being a, a personal uh, event. Like a, a, as in you take your car to the mechanic, car gets serviced, mechanic rings you, job's done, take the car home. It's it's pretty transactional, pretty straightforward, but we invest so much emotion and our, so much of our time in our pets, our domesticated pets, that when it can feel transactional from a client's side, it can be a bit kind of like, oh, I, that just felt like it happened and it wasn't, or there wasn't a connection. But then we've also acknowledged that trying to have an emotional connection and buy-in all the time can lead to burnout and, and that compassion fatigue. So it's, it's trying to strike that balance, right, of how much you, you do invest yourself, but finding a way to go about that. And I'm sure we'll get into that um, as we tap more into the work you're doing now. One of the ways that we can try to manage how much emotion and how much energy we invest in the clients or the colleagues is to kind of build a wall and they're on the other side of it. Mm. And yet the research says that when you invest and you have an emotional connection that it's good for you. Mm. It, it, it's good for you, it's good for the client, it's good for the animal because you, you get better quality care. You, you've got a two-way dialogue. You work together. Uh, so, yeah, it's we think that the wall helps, but the wall doesn't help. Maybe the wall needs a couple of windows that can be opened at the right time or the right... Maybe it's a more of a transparent wall rather yeah. than a brick wall. And so yep. you can see through to the other, but you're not the other. Yep. Yeah. And it's their pain... And you can mm. see it really clearly, but it's not yours to own. Yeah, well said. There's a lot of these, um, and not to make light heart of that, but we're seeing things through a lot of clear walls at the moment with these Perspex screens that are up in, I mean, they've been up in banks and 7-Elevens for years, but now with the post office and all kinds of places, it's funny that there's actually now this literal um, Perspex shield between us and someone else doing something on the other side. And that's me talking about going to the post office as a customer or whatever it might be. And who knows what the future of veterinary practice looks like because, I mean, I've uh, had a consult um, with my new cat and my old cat who passed recently. We've stood, you know, a metre and a half apart out in the car park. And well, there's no wall out there. It's all out in the open, but that creates other stresses in itself. Yeah, and there's also the masks, interestingly, if we keep going with that. I, I quite yeah. like the metaphors. Um, and the I think the masks are another thing around the barrier that we can have. Um that makes it harder to communicate. But we don't just have a physical mask. Many of us are wearing a metaphorical mask as well. Mm. And uh, letting that slip a little bit. So you said that I was quite open at sharing something. You know, I, I've got a role model this. If we can be more open, if we can let our masks slip a little bit, if we can talk about stuff that's hard, suddenly it's not as hard anymore. Yeah, exactly. And if everybody can see that those same things that they're going through that's that's hard is is shared, then it's, yeah, it's not something that, that we all need to feel that we have to have to keep quiet because we don't. Yeah. Um, so how how has that, that sort of journey progressed from there, Kathy? And you've, um, I see that you've, you've completed some further, further training. So sort of since that, that realization and um, how's that 
that journey um, progressed for you? So in a similar way in that I had to move away from something and that there was a, a fairly large blaze of non-glory. Um, so I, I could maybe I could summarise it by saying that I have seen firsthand how the management of a workplace impacts on the mental health of the team that work within it. And um, when I left my last job, I was definitely in burnout and I was way back to heaps of self-doubt around is, is what I have based my career on and what I think is important as a vet is it worthless? Is it is it really not important? Have have I, I don't know, wasted my time? And so I think that the further training was somewhere deep inside me. There was a kernel that thought I really, I'm, I really do think that I've got pretty good values, and but I, I need to prove it back to myself. And so that's where the diploma in positive psychology and wellbeing came from. Um, I, I, you know, I had this belief that. If people are well, they do good work. And it's so obvious. I mean, why do we have to prove it? But I needed to have the science behind it to be able to come back into the veterinary workplace and say people first, number second. Um, and if you treat people well, if they are well, they will treat the clients well and the animals well and the numbers will be good. You don't have to start with the numbers first. So now... You're working full-time now as, as a wellness consultant um, and Make Headway is the, is the business you've set up um, as that umbrella. So talk us through what that means. What, what is, what's, what's in the day of the life of a wellness consultant and where, where are you, how are you applying that trade? Um, okay, so I'm in Melbourne in lockdown. So just at this moment, it looks a little bit different. Uh, yeah, so there's a I lot of Zoom work at the moment, but normally some of it's face-to-face -face as well. So what it looks like is that I work with people individually and in groups that are mixed. Um, so they might be um, from a variety of different practices or they may all be from the same um, bigger practice group um, and, and talk about hard things, talk about the things that are challenging them and how can we manage it better, but also talk about what's good what do they do well? What are they strong at? What do they enjoy? What's important to them? And how can we make that more apparent in their life so that they enjoy it more? So I do do some training, which is more, you know, me telling people, but I don't, I really don't love telling. I much prefer asking and then um, responding to what people say and seeing if I can bring in a bit of research or a bit of a different perspective or ask them another question that might lead us a bit deeper. So individual and group work, sort of group coaching, individual coaching, and and a bit of um, more didactic teaching. Certainly in the last few years, we now have become better, it seems, at talking about and celebrating and acknowledging the things we are good at rather than focusing on what's broken, right? And and that's something that needs to continue to happen. And, and that's something that even when Cam and I spoke with Dr. Nadine Hamilton, who's doing some work in that in this space as well, obviously, with her through her through her efforts. And we are slowly getting better, but there's still a long way to go, isn't there? <laughs> there's a very long way to go. We just get into patterns of thinking and behaving that start right back at vet school. And you're assessed. And you're assessed 
well, it's even before you get, get to vet school, it's getting in. You know, we create perfectionism in the way that people have to get a certain ATAR and we, you know, they, they have to want to get everything right and then they get in and then we're assessing them all the time. And, of course, we have to demonstrate competency, but we probably aren't balancing it up enough and, and people just tend to see what they're not good at. And there's very little, there's very few opportunities for them to learn more about what they are good at. So I think um, we then take that pattern of looking for and trying to um, fill the deficits and the gaps and the weaknesses, and we take that through into our careers. And it's it's very demotivating. When you think about the stuff you're not good at, your shoulders slump and you just go, oh, no. Whereas if you can bring the things that you're good at to the things that you're struggling with, then you find a different pathway to to an endpoint using the things that you're good at. You've, and I've had a, been fortunate to have a, a little bit of involvement um, with seeing what, what you do in this role. Um, you've been involved in training our up-and-coming vets across several year groups, um, particularly in the practitioner and residence program at the University of Melbourne. Um, what have your been? What have your experiences been in this role? So lots of experiences. Um, so I think it's probably been five years. The the summary for me is that we have amazing people who apply and get into the veterinary degree who come from a variety of different backgrounds, and that the PIR, the practitioner residence interview that we do with them, which is two of them to a, to a practitioner, can sometimes be the first time that the focus has been solely on them and their needs. It's a bit scary for them to begin with because we're not trying to make them be anybody. We're instead trying to find out who they are and how do they represent that to a potential employer. I don't know, it's a beautiful thing. There's quite a lot of tears. There's a lot of emotion expressed in that room. There's a, a lot of um, validation and there's a lot of, you know, just people feeling bigger after they come out of it. So, you know, again, that's a privilege. It's a it's a beautiful to be able to, to do that and to give people a space. You know, there's people who have got to a stage where they hate vet, they hate what it's doing to them and trying to just drill behind that to why did you want to do this? What is it that attracts you? And try and redirect them to what's important to them as a way of maintaining their their purpose and their motivation to finish off the course and then to do what they wanted to do with their degree rather than what other people think they should do or should be. We have to, we have, I know we have to check that they're competent, but we're, we're looking for a certain type of person when in vet school, like we do in, um, in school, it's a certain type of person that gets the very high marks. And that really doesn't have much correlation with how they do as vets, how effective they are as vets. Yeah, it must be so so refreshing for the students to have somebody interested in discovering who they are um, and just to take a, a breath and step back from that that huge pursuit of becoming a vet that for many of them I'm sure has been around since they could talk um, and it's just something that they've been building towards and building towards and then, yeah, haven't 
maybe it is the first time that they've that they've thought about yeah how does my personality fit into this and where do my strengths sit and how can i um how can i fit that all together and and sometimes they they haven't really been enjoying this for some time they really lost their way in it and yet haven't really felt like they can say that to anybody because society their families with all the best intentions give them so much positive feedback of of getting in and of staying in that it can be really hard to make a decision not to do that you've also got the pressures of like what do you mean you're not enjoying it? You you studied hard for this. You pushed hard for the score. You stayed up all night, you know, um, cramming for an exam. You've, you know, all of that stuff. And then and then to be, but in yourself, be like, no, nah, I'm actually not really nailing this, and I'm not feeling, not having a good time. I can um, very much relate to that. I applied for medical school in Tassie after graduating high school and um, got in and started it just because I got in and six months later I was not enjoying it but I felt that pressure that I got in I got managed managed to get in um, but thankfully I managed to make the call and and get out of there because I could sort of see myself really not enjoying it so um, I'm I'm lucky that I managed to make the change when I did into something that I enjoyed more, but um, there's so many, so many changes that can happen throughout a, a career, which I'm still really at the start of. So where do you think we're at in terms of um, mental health and, and resilience training for our, our vet students in Australia? Um, are we where we need to be um, or what would what would you change if you if you could pull all the strings and and change everything in in vet schools in Australia? So the answer is no, we're not there. We're probably a long way from where we need to be, and it's very variable depending upon the vet school. And I only know some of the vet schools, so um, I'm you know it it, it is going to vary. Uh, I think one of the big tensions that we have in our degree is the tension between being a veterinary scientist and being a veterinary clinician? And are we teaching you to be a scientist, in which case it's mostly clinical and technical knowledge, or are we teaching you to be a clinician, in which case there's a lot more of the relationship stuff that needs to come in? Yeah. Uh, I think that the, the Vet Set to Go project that reported last year on the sorts of capabilities that we need to be both employable but also successful and sustainable in our careers have really helped to put some evidence behind the fact that it is a much broader range of things than we think. However, creating change in veterinary courses is quite difficult. We know we have a crowded curriculum. How do we bring in more content where, and what goes? Because actually, I was gonna. That's exactly my next question was going to be, what how, is there an openness to this? Because you've you've uh, walked the talk and, and been out there and and worked in animal care, and and have made this transition now to because you've realised that there needs to be this investment in people. 
but the people need to invest in themselves. So uh, it, it's sort of it's sort of all intrinsically linked. But the point of my question really is: Are the universities and and, and trainers open to this? Do they do they want to get this into the coursework? Because it feels like you you can't afford not to. Yeah. So I think the answer is that it's variable as well. That everybody has a slightly different idea on what that should look like, on what the course should look like, on what the content should look like, and trying to create consistency in that is difficult. Um, and, and then things like the AVMA accreditation and, and um, those sorts of things can put pressure back on the universities, as did the Vet Set to Go project to a certain extent. And then I'm picking up on what you said about we also need to make a commitment to ourselves. So I think that we can get so focused in our courses on passing assessments that we put all our effort into those assessments and and necessarily or I don't know whether it's necessary but it is that most of those are based around stuff that you can measure readily which is clinical skills and knowledge and so people don't put the time into resilience or balance or building relationships but then they come out into the workplace and they've got into a pattern of doing that, of focusing on clinical skills and knowledge and not focusing on all the other things. So, you know, if I could wave my magic wand and if I had one thing, I, I'd really like the vet industry to take up the model of professional development groups, which happens, for example, in doctors in, in New Zealand, where most doctors are a member of a, a professional development group. And you meet once a month and you talk about all the other stuff. Yeah. And you're talking at the time that you need it, mm. um, which means that you're motivated to take it on and to learn it um, or to, to learn skills that help you manage things better. And at the time that you're at vet school, it's really easy to think, yeah, I know that other people don't cope and I know that other people burn out but I'm a really competent person. It's not going to happen to me. But we all know that um, it does. And, uh, you know, it certainly happened to me a number of times. And um, it happens to all of us. And it's a, it's a matter of who's around to help us and whether we're willing to ask for help when it happens. And wouldn't it be so much better if we didn't get to that point? And wouldn't it be so much better if we had these conversations earlier and we learnt from each other because we all think we're the only person who's going through it. Everybody else is coping. It's only me. Um, and and the cycle continues. Yeah. And again, you can expand that out to so many other um, parts of life. I mean, something I've I've spoken with Cam about away from the microphones is, is like, is there a need to bring more people who have been out and become a vet and a five, six, seven years, I don't know what the number is, into the universities and, and there's things like these these mentor programs and, you know, walking with people who are five years ahead of you and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and, and no one wants to go to the racing car convention and, and see the pictures of racing cars crashing and, and think, oh, well, I'm not going to bother becoming a racing car driver. I'll pick something else to do. Um, the risks are there and you can acknowledge that, that, that a car, you know, is a dangerous thing to drive at high speed. But, you don't want to be deferring people away from the thing that they've decided they want to buckle in and do. Um, I'm using car as an analogy for bet science, but you know where I'm going. And and it's how much of that is enough or, or is that, do you think that's the right way to go about it? Should we be getting 
more of the lived experience back to the training years and and putting that in front of people and, and letting them, I suppose, be exposed to that, but understand it and, and what it means. Yeah, I do. I do think that the lived experience is important and I think it needs to be positively oriented um, just yeah. in, in the same way that we know that the TAC ads that showed people dying exactly makes you turn about. away. So mm-hmm. we don't want to bring in, we, we should do a bit of this, but we don't want to bring in burnt out people and people who have been depressed, anxious and suicidal and get them Absolutely to talk not. because that people don't necessarily identify with that. So it's more about it's more about learning the skills. So it's more about how did I learn the skills? How could you learn the skills that help you um, thrive in the workplace? And so the mentor programs, I think that makes a huge difference. A lot of the bigger um, groups that are having formal mentor programs. I think the AVA New Grad Mentoring Program is fantastic. Uh, but I also think that as an industry, we don't really commit to professional mentors very often. Mm. And I, I think we, we actually need to do that to get consistency and to have somebody who has the skills to help you respond to the things that are in front of you right now. Yeah, it really seems like the best way to do it, doesn't it? Because I guess when it comes to, to vet school um, in terms of training and things like that, it's not as you said, it's not something you can you can measure. It's not something you can, you know, do a, a quiz on um, because it's it's so intangible. Um, and then you can understand for the vet students if there is some sort of training on mental well-being, and they're not being tested on it. Well, they've got twenty other things to study for already. So. Why would I attend that when I've got so much else spinning around in my brain? So, but it's a, but it's a re it's a reset of that investment in yourself and others around you and your future, which is hard to see when you're 18 or 19 and and you've only been a high achiever and you've only smashed it in your grades to get into uni. And Cam, you went another way and like Flynn originally went into science and and then fought tooth and nail to get himself up into vet science and that was the goal and he put himself under a lot of pressure to do that as I'm sure many others did, but. It's really, it's really hard to to see that it's valuable to invest in yourself because you are it's target driven. You're gonna you're gonna collect a cohort of of high achieving people that that are scientists, um, and and then try to tell them to just do some extra stuff on the side. It's it's tough. It's really tough. But and I'm, I'm not, and I'm just being devil's advocate a little bit here. And I, I I think we need it to be done in a lot of areas of life. Um, and, and it's, there's a big challenge there and how like there's a uni in Australia or somewhere in the world that I think can trailblaze this. Um, and, and, and that's there for the taking. That's my, that's my read there, but, um, I'm not in the field, so it's easy for me to say that. Well, we're, we're also seeing that and bringing it into school. So my kids at a local high school have had positive psychology. They learn about growth mindsets. They learn about emotional intelligence. I have boys. I don't know how much they listen to it because they. I think they think that they have it in stereo with me as well. Um, yeah. But um, and they're in that you know that age group where they're not necessarily wanting to listen to that. But it's starting, and it's starting in primary schools as well. So I think that we are equipping people f- through school in a much better um, way to respond to the world's challenges. 
Um, and I think that that will flow through to uh, early vets and vets in general um, in a few more years' time. But it, there's a cohort that have, that have missed it, that didn't get that. Yeah. They've just got all the challenges of the modern world without having some of those skills and tools yeah. to try to cope with it. But it's great too because unlike the learnings that you've had and the work you're doing now, you can work with those that who are already are already working but we can also be looking at the, the next gen coming through. And sometimes, as with many other things we've seen in life, if you you, you kind of have to just jump in and, and catch it through that next generational wave coming through and it becomes a norm. Like Cam and I are in that age bracket where we've kind of had a bit of each and we've felt that change. We're obviously invested in doing this in, in an emotional sense and the reason why we're walking and talking and having these conversations. You can you can make change and I think that it's, it's a fantastic thing that... Uh, you're doing so commend you for that and um yeah well done well done for the work you're doing thank you and i agree that if that we if we um work on the the newer younger people it's probably in terms of resources or cost benefit um that's probably where we get the most bang for our buck um it's harder to change people who have are in established ways of working so starting earlier is good and if I could wave, wave my magic wand again at a university level and we could stop grading people and just have competent and not yet competent so that people didn't spend the inordinate amount of time that they spend to get their grade from a, you know, a good solid 60 to 70 to a 80 to 90, um, then they would have time to focus on balance and maintaining relationships and doing self-care and building their resilience and working and learning some non-transfer or some transferable sorry skills then we'd all benefit from it yeah it seems a bit a bit redundant to have a, a ducks of vet school doesn't it when really all of the people coming through would have been ducks of everything that they've probably done beforehand so it's it's a it's an amazing Amazingly high bar to set, isn't it? Surely is. Yeah, and the pressure, the pressure is huge. And something I find really interesting about um, the concept of of positive psychology too, and something that you've touched on as well, is the the idea of um, encouraging moving into that flourishing stage of the the mental health spectrum. Because I think something that's often it's something that's left out of the conversation a lot of times in that um, people speak about mental health as an absence of mental illness, but it's it's really not, not like that, is it? There's much more to it. Yeah, so an absence of mental illness is survival. Mm. Oh, dear. The thought of just surviving, mm. of getting through the day and just dragging yourself through it. Yeah, that's, yeah, so there's a, there's a huge difference. And I, I think if we, if we think of it as a plus 10 is full-on flourishing, which many of us are only going to get glimpses of at very for very small moments because the only way is down. Zero is that place where I'm not flourishing, but nor do I have a mental illness. And then we can go down to minus 10. So we've got a spectrum that goes from minus 10 where we've got very serious mental illnesses to zero where we're surviving to 10 where we're flourishing. And if we can try and, I mean, even if we just move half a point towards the flourishing side, it can make a huge difference to how you feel. Um, but if we can, if people can live in the four to seven zone, that's a great place to live. 
Yeah. And and it just Absolutely. takes some school, some skills, some tools, um, and and some support to talk about the things that are hard and try and find ways to get through them. Yeah, and 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 the opposite being to bottle them up, hold them in, and and not talk about it. And it's obviously a huge part of of our mission and message here, Cam, and and uh, triggering those conversations and and. Um, you know, in the time it takes to make a cup of tea, you can you can make a huge amount of difference in someone's life, and that's just at a very small level. But personally, I feel that you have to look at this as small things that can lead to larger growth, right? Yeah, and it it really is stringing together a lot of little things that leads to flourishing. Uh, we we tend to think about you know I'll, I'll feel happy when like it's called destination happiness. I'll be happy when. I get into vet. I'll be happy when I finish vet. I'll be happy when I've finished my first year of practice. I'll be happy when I'm the owner or I'm a specialist. That's those things. Or I'll be happy when I'm traveling and and having a a huge six-week holiday. Those things don't make you happy. It's all the little things that you do on a daily basis that make you happy. Yep. And we we hear about uh, happiness is not the destination. It's the journey that you're on and all those kinds of things, which, you know, a, a great when they're written in a cursive font over a mountain photo on Instagram, but it's actually simplifying some stuff that can be complex and get away from you very quickly. But um, that's where Instagram can can be simple in more ways than one. But for yourself, what what do you do that keeps you keeps you balanced? My sense we're talking over Zoom, but you've got a very calming demeanor. You're someone who's obviously got your feet are on the ground and, and you've got a great perspective Um and what, what do you do to look after your own headspace? Okay, so so let me um, be clear that I'm not the the perfect role model, or and, and that it's taken a lot for me to learn this. I've had a couple of very serious episodes of burnout that have certainly taught me a lot about my limitations, about what I can do and what I can't do, and I do feel uh, uh, that I'm a role model in this. Um, space now and so it's very important for me to walk the walk and not just talk the talk so there's a lot is the answer that i do to maintain um, my own mental health having some healthy habits around my self-care make a huge huge difference so for example at 6 30 every morning the alarm on the weekdays the alarm goes off and i get up and exercise and have the healthy breakfast and that is the start of the day. After that, it, it almost doesn't matter because I just feel like I can face the day when I've had those things. I do a lot of managing of my mood. So, you know, it took me, I've only learned over the last few years that I can have an influence on my mood. And so I do things that put me into the zone to do the task that's in front of me. And so say I'm starting to get scatty and I can feel the scattiness, I might go and um, lie down and listen to a piece of calming music and just try to listen to every note of that piece of music. And it just brings me down. It sort of downloads what was going around and around in my head and I start again. Or it might be like today that I go, that it's the sun was shining and so I got the dog and I went for a walk around the park just for 15 minutes um, while I was having lunch. And so again, it, it it sort of resets me, and I can start a, 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 the next task with as much enthusiasm and brain power as I did, um, you know, at the beginning of the day. So it's lots of little breaks to help keep my brain functioning, and then 
a big boundary around trying not to work at night or on the weekend. I feel like 20 years in emergency was enough that I've done my quota of weekends and nights for my lifetime. And so I try not to work at those times. Yeah, keep my workload to less than 40 hours a week. They're some of the things. I could add more. Yeah. Oh, they're great. Thank you. All simple and very achievable within reach, within control. Hopefully this this can help people um, maybe reset, even if it is just a small habit, like a wake up time or, or a healthy meal or um, getting a good night's rest. And you're right that the other end of the, of the um, day is important as well in terms of the, the wind down to get to bed by a certain time so that, because I know that I need eight hours, that I'm just not a very good person without it. Um, the two ends of the day, if I get those sorted, then the middle takes care of itself. Well, you bring an amazing perspective to all of this. And uh, as I said back at the start, uh, I think where you are in life is really the perfect juncture of, of all of the parts that we talk about and, and have shared through this series and through our, through our mission. So I appreciate you coming on for a chat. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And um, as I said, it's, it really is an honour to be a part of Flynn's Talk podcast. Awesome to chat to Cathy and appreciate her um, bringing her whole self cam um, to the episode and, and really she's, she's quite open about the journey that she's been on and, and clearly is passionate about the journey she continues to be on and, and and helping others. Yeah, absolutely. Great to hear her perspective on everything. If you'd like to get in touch with Kathy or, you know, you, you're um, a veterinarian still at school or, or, or out in the field and or, or you're a practice manager or, or a people manager across the board somewhere, um, you can get in touch with Kathy through her website, which is makeheadway.com.au. Um, she works closely with Cheryl as well. And you're more than welcome to hit her up um, and there's lots of resources and handy information on her website too. So, um, and of course, if if you're looking for more um, formalized support, um, if you if you're not having a great time or someone around you is in a crisis, um, there's always help available. And some of the initial places you can go to: Lifeline, 24 hours, seven days a week, 13, 11, 14. Suicide callback service, one three hundred six five nine four six seven. But in an emergency, it's just best to call triple zero or get uh, yourself or the person you're concerned about some help straight away. Are you okay? Day is coming up and they've got some great resources on their website. And of course, if you're under 25, there's Headspace. Cam, it's been great to chat. Um, appreciate you jumping in again and, and being a part of this and um, loved the conversation today. And um, I know that you and I will be chatting again very soon. Sounds good. Sounds good.